0: Hello, this is Dr. Peng and Chien, the editor-in-chief of Heart Rhythm. Here is a summary of the June 2021 issue of the Heart Rhythm Journal. The featured article is titled, The Racial Differences in Instance of Atrial Fibrillation After Cryptogenic Stroke. The authors retrospectively analyzed 416 consecutive patients undergoing insertable cardiac monitor implantation, and have followed up for 5, 1.5 years. They found that the instance of newly detected AF is approximately double in whites compared with both blacks and Hispanics. This has important implications for the investigation and the treatment of non-whites with cryptogenic stroke. The next article is blood biomarkers to detect new onset atrial fibrillation and cardioembolism in ischemic stroke patients. The authors prospectively collected from ischemic stroke patients multiple blood biomarkers, including anti-proBNP, uh, D-dimer, S100-beta, neuron-specific enolase, vitamin D, cortisol, interneukin-6, insulin, uric acid, and albumin. Of the 515 ischemic stroke patients with a mean age of 61 years, 71% men, 44 or 8.5% were diagnosed with new onset atrial fibrillation and 75 or 14.5% had cardioembolism. The combination of two laboratory parameters and two or three biomarkers could identify patients with increased likelihood of new-onset atrial fibrillation and cardioembolism. Adding clinical predictors did not improve the performance of these models. Next up is an individualized ablation uh, strategy to treat persistent atrial fibrillation, core-to-boundary approach guided by charge density mapping the authors used non-contact charge density mapping for rapid real-time global mapping of atrial fibrillation. They then compared the two-year outcome of an individualized strategy consisting of pulmonary vein isolation plus core-to-boundary ablation, targeting the conduction pattern core with an extension to the nearest non-conducting boundary, guided by charge density mapping with an empirical PDI plus posterior wall electrical isolation strategy. The authors found that an individualized ablation strategy, consisting of PDI plus core to boundary ablation, guided by non-contact charge density mapping, is a feasible and effective strategy for treating persistent AF with a favorable 24-month outcome. Coming up next is oral anticoagulants in extremely high-risk, very elderly, that is over 90 years, uh, patients with atrial fibrillation. The authors used the Taiwan National Health Insurance Research Database to identify high-risk, very elderly subjects taking oral anticoagulants, or OAC, and compare them to non-OAC users for the composite net clinical endpoint of ischemic stroke, intracranial hemorrhage, major bleeding, or mortality. They found that warfarin was associated with a similar or even higher risk of composite clinical outcomes compared to non-OACs. Non-vitamin K OACs were associated with a lower risk of composite endpoint uh, compared to warfarin or non-OACs and their use should be considered in these high-risk, very elderly AF patients. The following article is Does Pulsed Field Ablation Regress Over Time? A Quantitative Temporal Analysis of Pulmonary Vein Isolation. Pulsed field ablation, or PFA, is an attractive energy source for PV isolation. However, Beyond each PFA lesion's zone of irreversible electroporation and cell death, there may be a surrounding zone of reversible electroporation and cell injury that could potentially normalize with time. In a clinical trial using biphasic PFA waveform, detailed voltage maps were created using a multi-spline diagnostic caster immediately after PFA and again about three months later. There was no significant difference in either the left and right-sided PV entral isolation areas or non-ablated posterior wall area. The distances between low-voltage edges on the posterior wall were also not significantly different between the two time points. This study demonstrates that the level of PV entral isolation after PFA with a multi-electrode PFA caster persists without regression. Next up is castor ablation of ventricular tachycardia in ischemic cardiomyopathy, impact of concomitant amiodarone therapy on short- and long-term clinical outcomes. A total of 134 consecutive patients were included in the study. In 84 patients, or 63%. The ablation was performed on amiodarone, and the remaining 50 patients, or 37%, were off amiodarone. During a mean follow-up of 24 months, recurrence of any ventricular arrhythmias off antiarrhythmic drugs was 44%, or 37 over 84, in the on-amiodarone group, versus 22%, or 11 over 50, in the off-amiodarone group. Although patients on amiodarone required less radiofrequency time and less need for epicardial ablation, these patients had significantly higher VT recurrence at long-term follow-up when amiodarone was discontinued. The following article is ventricular tachycardia burden reduction after substrate ablation, predictors and recurrence. The purpose of this study was to assess VT burden reduction during long-term follow-up after substrate ablation and identify predictions of VT recurrence. The authors analyzed 234 consecutive VT ablation procedures in 207 patients. After follow-up of 3.14 years, the VT recurrence rate was 41.4%. Overall, a 99.6% reduction in VT burden and 96.3% decrease in ICD shocks were observed. Lower ejection fraction and the persistence of late potentials are predictors of recurrence. The next article is assessment of patients presenting with life-threatening ventricular tachyarrhythmias and the suspected myocarditis the key role of endomyocardial biopsy. The authors enrolled 54 consecutive patients with normal ventricular function. In 31 patients, the histological diagnosis was myocarditis, while in 14 patients, focal replacement myocardial fibrosis and in nine patients, specimens were inadequate. At the follow-up of 21 months, Histological diagnosis of myocarditis and RV endocardial scar were independent predictors of sustained ventricular arrhythmias. This data highlights the need of 3D electroanatomical mapping guided endomyocardial biopsy in apparently healthy young patients with suspected myocarditis and ventricular arrhythmias. Next up, is spatial and transmural properties of re ventricular tachy- tachycardia circuit in arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, simultaneous epicardial and endocardial recordings. The purpose of this study was to delineate the re VT circuit with simultaneous epicardial and endocardial mapping in 23 consecutive ARVC patients. Of the 30 VT circuits, 24 were delineated. There is a consistent predominance of epicardial participation during reentry in ARVC. Only the perivascular inflow region of the triangle of dysplasia had a strong propensity to harbor VT circuits, with the greatest proportion located in the inferior wall. Localized epicardial reentry may be a manifestation of earlier stage disease with the relative paucity of endocardial substrate. The following article is temperature monitoring and a temperature-driven irrigated radiofrequency energy titration do not prevent thermally induced esophageal lesions in pulmonary vein isolation. A randomized study controlled by esophagoscopy before and after castor ablation. The purpose of the study was to determine one, the benefit of luminal esophageal temperature monitoring, and two, the impact of esophagogastroduodenoscopy. The primary endpoint was the number of ablation-induced lesions. 8 of 86 patients developed esophageal lesions. Temperature overshooting of to greater than or equal to 42 degrees C was associated with a higher risk for new lesions. The authors conclude that monitoring of luminal esophageal temperature does not prevent ablation-induced esophageal lesions. Patients without temperature surveillance were not at high, higher risk by temperature greater than or equal to forty-two degrees C, were associated with increased likelihood of mucosal lesions. Coming up next is a physiology-based electrocardiographic uh, criteria for left bundle branch capture. The authors hypothesized that because left bundle branch pacing results in physiological depolarization of the left ventricle. Then the native QRS complex can be, can serve as a reference for a diagnosis of LBB capture in the same patients. A total of 357 ECGs from 124 patients were analyzed. 118 with native rhythm, 124 with non-selective LBB capture, and 69 with selective LBB capture, and 46 with LV septal capture. The authors compared the paced and native V6 R-wave peak time. They showed equivalency of LV activation times on ECG during native and paced LBB conduction. Therefore, if V6 R-wave peak time is longer during pacing, this finding is indicative of lack of LBB capture. The next paper is also about LBB pacing, titled The Relationship of Paced Left Bundle Branch Pacing Morphology with Anatomic Location and Physiological Outcomes. The purpose of this study was to explore pacing and the physiological characteristics associated with different LBB pacing locations. The study included 68 consecutive patients with normal unpaced QRS duration and successful LBBP implantation. Patients were divided into three groups according to the PASTE-QRS complex and left bundle branch trunk pacing, left posterior fascicular pacing, or left anterior fascicular pacing. Fluoroscopic image indicated that the lead tip was located most commonly in the basal middle region of the septum independent of PASTE-QRS morphology group. These data show that pacing at different sites of left bundle branch resulted in similar intraventricular and interventricular electrical synchrony in patients with an intact conduction system. Fluoroscopic imaging alone could not predict specific LBB paced QECG morphology. Next up is the extent of peri scar on late gadolinium enhancement cardiac magnetic resonance imaging and outcome in patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy. The authors studied 216 patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy underwent CMR imaging before primary or secondary ICD implantation and prospectively followed up the patients for 1497 days. They found that scar extent of peri border zone was significantly associated with appropriate ICD therapy. Therefore, LGE-CMR parameters can identify a subgroup of patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy and an increased risk of life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias. The following paper is prognosis of patients with severe left ventricular dysfunction after transvenous lead extraction and the need for additional hemodynamic support in the postoperative period. The author studied 37 patients with severe LV dysfunction defined by LV ejection fraction or less than or equal to 35%, undergoing transvenous lead extraction and compared their mortality than those with LV ejection fractional greater than 35%. The authors found no significant uh, uh, between group differences in major complications and clinical success rates. Patients with severe LV dysfunction were more likely to require additional hemodynamic support. The survival rate was not significantly different between the groups at 30 days and one year after transvenous lead extraction. The next article is the benefits of routine uh, prophylactic femoral access during transvenous lead extraction. The authors conducted a retrospective analysis of 285 patients who underwent transvenous lead extraction. Femoral sheaths were actively engaged in 9.1% or 26 cases. Deployment snares was the most common intervention, followed by prophylactic or emergency placement of occlusion balloons, temporary pacing, venous angioplasty, uh, diagnostic venography, and extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. The authors conclude that routine prophylactic placement of femoral sheaths shortens response time and quickly establishes control in the event of various complications that may occur during transvenous lead extraction procedures. The following paper is Competing Risk in Patients' Primary Prevention Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillators, Global Electrical Heterogeneity and the Clinical Outcomes, or GEHCO study. The purpose of this study was to investigate whether global electrical heterogeneity is associated with appropriate ICD therapies in patients with heart failure and primary prevention ICDs. Global electrical heterogeneity was measured by spatial ventricular gradient direction and magnitude, QRS-T angle, and the the sum of absolute QRS-T integral on pre-implant 12-lead ECGs. They analyzed 2,668 patients and found that global electrical heterogeneity is independently associated with appropriate ICD therapies. The spatial ventricular gradient vector points in distinctly different directions in patients with two competing outcomes. The next article is the racial disparities in the utilization and in-hospital outcomes of percutaneous left atrial appendage closure among patients with atrial fibrillation. The authors identified 16,830 hospitalizations for percutaneous left atrial appendage closure or PLAC during the national inpatient sample. Black or African-American patients represented four percent of nationwide PLAC recipients and were younger, more likely to be female, and had greater prevalence of hypertension, heart failure, hyperlipidemia, obesity, chronic kidney disease, and a prior stroke history. After controlling for possible confounding factors, Black and African American race was independently associated with significantly increased odds of bleeding, requiring blood transfusion, stroke, venous thromboembolism, and non-routine discharge. This study highlights the importance of addressing ongoing racial disparities in both utilization and outcomes of percutaneous left atrial appendage closure. Next up is the right ventricular insertion promotes the initiation of ventricular fibrillation in defibrillation failure. The purpose of this study was to determine whether wave break leading to VF reinitiation following near defibrillation threshold shocks occurs preferentially at the right ventricular insertion, which previous studies have identified as a key site for wave break. The authors use panoramic optical mapping to image the ventricular epicardium of six isolated swine hearts. After each experiment, the hearts were fixed and their geometry scanned with MRI. The results show that anterior RV insertion is a key site in promoting defibrillation shock failure. Targeting the site to prevent weight break could convert defibrillation failure to success and improve defibrillation efficacy. Up next, Is absence of uh, subacute cerebral events or lesions after electroporation ablation in the left-sided canine heart. Irreversible electroporation, or IRE, can create gas bubbles at the, the ablation electrode. Cerebral effects of these bubbles are unknown. In 11 canines, baseline cerebral MRI scars were performed. At days 1 and 5 after ablation, MRI was repeated. The brain ish, uh, tissue then was histopathologically examined. Intracardiac echography confirmed gas bubble formation after each IRE application. Neurological examination was normal. MRI images alone or in combination with histological follow-up did not reveal treatment-related embolic events. Gross and microscopic pathology did not reveal evidence of treatment-related embolic events. Irreversible electroporation seems to be a safe ablation modality for the brain. These original articles are followed by two contemporary reviews. The first one is titled Evolution of Risk Stratification and Sudden Death Prevention in Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, 20 years with Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator. The second one is titled Optimizing Lead Placement for Pacing in Desynchronous Heart Failure, The Patient in the Lead. Dr. Alfred Buxton wrote a viewpoint titled 30 Years of Castor Ablation, for ventricular tachycardia, as the sixth entry in our series of articles to celebrate the 30th year of RF ablation. Among the letters to editors, there is one titled Life Saving Therapy Inhibition by Phones Containing Magnets. The authors reported the magnet in Apple iPhone 12 was able to cause suspension of therapy by a Medtronic ICD. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm the editor in chief, Dr. Peng Shen Chen.